Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Greg Storr. And we're back after a week off here at Cases and Controversies. In the meantime, the justices have headed back into the courtroom for arguments, kicking off their November sitting on October 30th. Totally makes sense. As much as anything at the court. Uh, During the first week, the court heard four cases, including a pair of social media cases that we're going to dive into later in this episode. Right. But before we get to those arguments, uh, there have been about 800 emergency applications. Is that your count? 800? More or less. Maybe it's just a handful um, of emergency requests that have come in recently dealing with the Biden administration's so-called good neighbor rule. Greg, please tell me this has something to do with Mr. Rogers. Um, It's not, but now you've put that song in my head. (laughs) Anyway, um, this is about something that is also called the traveling ozone rule. It has to do with the Clean Air Act. And under the Clean Air Act, what the EPA does is it issues air quality standards, and then states have to issue plans to implement those air quality standards. And if the plan is not good enough, the EPA can say, we're going to override that and impose our own plan. And the reason it's called the good neighbor rule or the traveling ozone rule is this is directed at states that are upwind where they emit ozone and it travels down to a a different state and affects the air quality there. And so here EPA issued a plan for 23 states, said their plans aren't good enough, or in a couple of cases, they didn't even submit one. Uh, this is a, a plan that covers things like natural gas pipelines, cement kilns, and steel mills and paper mills. And the EPA plan is already on hold for unrelated reasons in about half of those 23 states. And now some other states and industry groups and companies are at the Supreme Court trying to stop the plan for the rest of the country. They are asking the court to block the plan while litigation goes forward. And they say the reason you need to do that is in part because there are going to be really high compliance costs on us in the interim. EPA says, nah, they're not going to be really high compliance costs. And so the Supreme Court will sort that out and presumably give us an emergency order soon. So you say soon. We got the responses yesterday, Thursday, November 2nd. So what does soon mean? Uh, well, it could it could mean before we get this this podcast out, but more likely, I would say sometime next week, uh, there are actually four emergency applications, and so there's a lot for them, the justices, to sort through. All right. So, Kimberly, one other thing of note that has happened has to do with a handful of subpoenas that are uh, apparently going to be issued by the Senate Judiciary Committee. Who are they subpoenaing, and why? Right. So Senators Durbin and White House announced earlier this week that they plan to have a committee vote on whether to issue subpoenas to two wealthy GOP donors who have been the subject of recent reporting on alleged ethics violations by Justices Thomas and Alito. And also a subpoena for another influential conservative legal activist, Leonard Leo, who was behind President Trump's successful bid to fill the ranks of the judiciary with conservative jurists, including three justices on the Supreme Court. Now, the senators say that they need the information from these individuals to assess the need for Supreme Court ethics reform. Ding, ding, ding. We got it in. Bingo card scratch. Um, (laughs) And they say that formal subpoenas are necessary because voluntary requests from the committee have either been rebuffed or have produce inadequate responses. So that's where we are. And do we know when the vote might happen? And any thoughts on what the result might be? 
Right. So the timing is still a little bit up in the air. It could be as early as next week. Um, as far as what the outcome might be, it looks like the Democratic members of the committee do not need to get any buy-in from um, the GOP. And that's a good thing for them because conservatives have really blasted these efforts as saying that liberals are really just upset that the court is now strongly conservative 6-3 majority court. And speaking of the court and its 6-3 conservative majority, let's talk about arguments. The justices heard a pair of cases dealing with social media and in particular whether public officials violate the First Amendment when they use their private social media platforms to talk about public issues and then block their constituents from posting comments. Joining us to talk about the case is David Green of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who filed an amicus brief in support of the freedom to post. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, I'm happy to be here. So, David, these cases involved local officials who posted on Facebook and the site formerly known as Twitter for things like COVID precautions and how to discuss race in a classroom setting. And, you know, listeners can imagine about how well that went. Uh, But can you tell us why this is a federal case that we're hearing in the Supreme Court? Well, it's being heard in the Supreme Court. And actually, cases like this are being heard in federal courts uh, around the country because it raises federal constitutional issues, namely the First Amendment issues. Uh, First Amendment issue being, do these public officials, and sometimes it's public agencies also, but do they infringe members of the public's First Amendment rights if they either delete their comments or block them so that they can't participate in the discussion? And so that's why we're in federal court. These These are First Amendment issues, and federal courts can consider those. And David, there was a lot that went on in these arguments, in part because there were two cases the court was considering. In all that, what would you say was kind of your biggest takeaway? How receptive were the justices to those free speech arguments? Yeah, you know, my big caveat, right, is always that sometimes the arguments tell you very little about what the justices are actually thinking. What I think they are trying to figure out is, when is the official acting as the government when they use them, and when are they just acting as a private person? So I think that's what they were. That's what they were struggling over. And so the justices often use hypotheticals to sort of test out um, the the reach of the various arguments that are being made. I don't know about you, but it seemed like, especially in the first case, all of the argument was hypotheticals. Um, Was that your impression as well? And if so, were they able to sort of come to a conclusion about, you know, where where this First Amendment line should be through those hypotheticals? This was a very hypo heavy (laughs) oral argument. And that's in some ways, that's not unusual. I mean, that's when they are in cases like this, where it's really the first time this issue has come before the Supreme Court, and, and I think the reason the Supreme Court takes cases like this is because it wants to you know, create some rules. And so in cases like that, it's really common for the court to sort of test the rules out by giving hypotheticals. And so, you know, and, and those hypotheticals can take the actual facts and you know, and vary them just a little bit uh, here or there. And, and so I think that's what we saw happening in this case. Some of them you know, seem to be a little bit more successful uh, than others. But I, I do think the court was really trying to figure out if it was going, wanted to make sure it was exploring sort of all the different you know, possible factual variations and how 
those might influence it on in creating in creating workable rules here. One of the hypotheticals that the court spent a little bit of time on was Justice Alito's hypo about a public official who's at the grocery store doing his or her shopping and somebody comes up and wants to start a conversation. All right. So uh, the mayor is in the grocery store and is uh, repeatedly approached by constituents. And the mayor uh, listens, to, really doesn't want to be bothered, but listens to supporters and people who are sympathetic to the mayor's program. But uh, with somebody who is a known opponent uh, approaches the mayor, the mayor says, look, please call my office. <clears throat> is the mayor doing his job when he's doing that? And the point of that, I think, was, hey, these are people who have private lives, too, and they're not always on duty. And so my question for you is, how does the court deal with that from your perspective as somebody who wants to allow you know, folks to be able to, to post on these social media pages? How does the court sort of allow public officials to wall off an area where they're actually just private citizens doing private citizen things? Yeah, I mean that's it's uh, that's it's a really good question, and I in what happens in the social media cases in one of the cases was that you know, the person's Facebook account that was a previously existing Facebook account in the other case in the Garnier case that the the account was created after the person took office, but in in the in the other cases this was an account that someone had, and so I think one of the things the justices were using the hypotheticals for was to talk about sort of when. When someone becomes a public official, do their op- how do their obligations to the public change? And how is their ability to silence people, which is an ability you have when you just have a social media account as a private person, how does that change? And so I, I think with the grocery store example, I, I, what they were trying to get at was you know, let's explore something that seems to be an inherently your private capacity encounter. And and let's see if that you know, helps us understand the rule a bit. Where, where I think that went was that, was helping them understand, or at least helping those of us who are listening <laughs> to the argument, understand how different that is, like how a surreptitious one-on-one encounter is different than social media where you are, you know, we're having a public conversation that's, um, that's open up to the public, you know, in, in general. Silencing a person in the second situation where it's a, it's a sort of default public conversation is much different than how you treat somebody and how you interact with someone in an unplanned, you know, surreptitious one-on-one encounter. One thing I wanted to ask is, you know, Justice Kagan in a case last term talked about uh, how the justices aren't in her words, the nine greatest experts on the Internet. Um, And, you know, thinking about this case, the justices may use social media in a very different way than a lot of Americans in a way that a different way than the people who are in these cases. Is that going to make a difference on how the outcome of this this case goes? Well, I I hope not. The court is going to hear at least I'm, I'm counting now five cases that deal with social media and they're going to require them to have a pretty thorough understanding of how social media works, how people use it, how the platforms operate. They're going to hear five really important cases this term. These two they heard 
earlier this week or just the first two. And so they really do need to understand them, really need to understand. It doesn't mean they have to have you know, first-hand experience with every single platform, but they do need to have an accurate understanding of how they work. So how do we hope they get that? Uh, well, there's, there's a few ways. One, again, they might have first-hand experience. Uh, there are clerks who very often are many generations younger than them uh, and may have be, have be more of like a digital natives or people who have sort of been immersed in using social media for a bigger chunk of their lives can be very helpful there as well. And, and that's really also one of the functions that amicus briefs, that the friend of the court briefs uh, serve as well. And in these cases, we have a lot of friends of the court briefs, um, and I, I expect we'll see more in the social media cases to come, that really focus on trying to educate the court on you know, how platforms operate. Yeah, but we did, of course, have this, you know, in, in last term, it was you know, Justice Kagan saying, we're not the nine greatest experts here. Um, and I think, you know, it's a sort of takeaway line from, from Tuesday's argument was the Chief Justice uh, in response to a question about, you know, whether we can analogize, you know, social media control, uh, control of the social media account to sort of control of property. You're talking about, you know, this isn't you know, real property. These are protons or something, I think is what he said. I was very surprised in reading the brief to see all the emphasis on private property. I mean, usually we're told in these, you know, um, uh, social media, whatever cases, that it's not a question of a physical asset. And in what sense is this really private property? It's just the gathering of the protons or whatever they are. Uh, but, but does he understand physics better than he understands social media? Well, we'll find out. I, um, <laughs> <laughs> I actually think social media is hard to understand, but I think it's probably easier to understand than than nuclear physics. Probably. David, you, you mentioned the other social media cases. So those include fights over uh, Florida and Texas laws that would take away some of the uh, discretion of social media companies to, to moderate content. And then there's the other case involving the Biden administration allegedly pressuring, coercing social media companies to take down uh, misleading information about COVID. Is there a reason why the court has so many social media cases this term, or is it just a coincidence? Um, that's a really good question. And let me, before I guess at the answer, uh, let me give you my conclusion, which is no matter whether it's coincidence or some type of plan, it's going to result in a, or at least there's a potential for a serious rewriting of internet law. The stakes are really, really high. And I actually think it's more likely than not that we will have a greater understanding of the rights of users and platforms and the limitations placed on government after this term, at the end of this term, than we do now. Whether that is going to signal a big change in the law or an affirmation of our existing understanding, I don't know. But that is going to be the result. Are they taking them all because that's their intended result, or is it just a coincidence of timing? This is when these matters have come up. I really don't know. I, I don't think anyone was surprised that they took the Florida and Texas cases, but that was mostly because the lower courts, the Fifth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit, had disagreed. And that type of conflict 
in the courts is something that the Supreme Court very commonly will try to resolve in some way, either by taking the cases or, or taking taking some other action. I also think that the what is now called Mercy versus Missouri, which is the what we call jawboning to the extent that government can violate First Amendment rights by coercing or high, strongly encouraging intermediaries to censor user speech. It just seems like a highly important case to take. So maybe it's a coincidence or not. These other cases, the ones that I heard this week about the about the social media accounts blocking, I was actually a bit surprised those were taken. Again, th- those types of cases have been in the courts for almost 10 years now, and the Supreme Court had previously had rejected all requests to reconsider them, and um, but it decided to take these two. So I I think there's that that points that there being some you know, willfulness to get a handle on internet law. Uh, To some degree, my sense from the argument was that they were looking to do something relatively narrow and maybe something that could get a consensus. Uh, Justice Gorsuch asked a question about how, you know, does it seem like we're all sort of, you know, coalescing around a single sort of test? Was that your sense as well? Do you think we might come out of this case not with it, you know, one of these five four rulings, but something where um, a larger majority of the, the justices can agree on, and then we'll deal with other cases later on? I got the sense that this argument was. I think, notable because there did not seem to be in the questioning, did not seem to be a lot of disagreement among the justices. I don't know that any single one of them had sort of settled on a position. They didn't seem to be approaching the issue from wildly different places, either on a practical level about what the rule might be, or even from like a values-based level that you sometimes see in oral arguments where the justices reveal through their questions that they care about sharply different things. Like, that didn't come out in this argument. And so that might portend, you know, a, a, more, a more consensus to decision. The argument did feel that way. That being said, some of the justices have shown a desire in past internet cases to really write their own thoughts about this. So I, I'd be surprised if we didn't get any side opinions. Justice Thomas um, has liked to take the opportunity with every internet case that comes before the court to talk about you know, his conception of the role of intermediaries, and even if it's not directly relevant to the case. And so even if we get a unanimous opinion. I imagine we'll hear from the justices individually about sort of what their thoughts about how this fits into internet law and, again, this relationship between users, platforms, and the government. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was really great to chat about these cases, and now we'll all just wait around to see what they finally decide. Sounds good. Thanks a lot, David. All right. So, Greg, I said that the justices might not use social media in the same way that most Americans do, but... Come on, some of them probably use it like we do, right? How, how do we use it, Kimberly? <laughs> I, I think at least a couple of the justices have, have said that they at least lurk on social media. 
So even if they don't post under their own name, they see everything you post, Kimberly. Okay, Greg, before we go, I wanted to talk about one more case that the justices heard, this one involving a trademark and former President Donald Trump. What are we talking about with Trump too small? It is a not-so-subtle allusion to discussion in the 2016 Republican presidential debate about the size of Donald Trump's hands and potentially other things. I can't believe this is where we're at. You know, I mean, as a society, we're, like, debating Donald Trump's hands. It's fine. It's fine. Fire everywhere. Fine. (laughs) Go ahead, please. But now we're just debating the legal implications of Donald (laughs) Trump's hands, so it's it's, it's much more highbrow now. Uh, Anyway, there's a guy. (laughs) His name is Steve Elster. He's always a guy. He's always a guy. (laughs) He wants to put this phrase on T-shirts. And he sought to register the phrase with the Federal Patent and Trademark Office, which would help him keep other people from competing with him in that market for Trump Too Small t-shirts. The Trademark Office said, nope, you cannot register that phrase because there's this provision in federal trademark law. Now, this is when it gets less about Trump and more about the law. There is this provision in federal trademark law that bars registration of marks that identify a living person without that person's consent. And at the Supreme Court, the question is whether that provision violates the First Amendment, at least when it has to do with criticism of a government official, which um, this uh, certainly seems to be. So, Greg, we talked about this case briefly on our last episode, um, and we had talked about two previous cases that the justices had heard that involved trademarks and these rules about when the trademark protections could not be given. And we sort of thought that maybe that meant that the government had a pretty uphill battle in this one, but it didn't really seem that way from the arguments, right? No, it didn't. It seemed much more like a case the government was going to win. And, uh, you know, what what happened in those previous two cases, those were cases involving the registration of disparaging and lewd or vulgar trademarks. And what the court said in those cases what was that the government here is discriminating on the basis of viewpoint, which the government can pretty much never do under the First Amendment. And this case, this newest case, everybody seemed to think was not about viewpoint. It was about content, but not viewpoint. Point. And some of the justices focused on the fact that trademark isn't really about speech at all. The point of trademark is to help consumers identify the source of goods. So um, if, if you trademark Kimberly Strawbridge Robinson, people will know that it's you know, you're the one who's producing whatever great uh, items you're producing. So that dynamic made it a steeper uh, hill for Mr. Elster to climb. And it certainly seemed like the justices were inclined to rule against him in this case. All right. So um, what sort of items should I produce? What do you think? Uh, and, we'll, and we'll take any listener suggestions for what Kimberly should produce. <laughs> Help me become a millionaire. Uh, well, that's going to do it for this week. We will be back next week as the justices take up one of the biggest cases of the term so far, U.S. versus Rahimi, a Second Amendment case asking whether the federal government can prohibit those subject to a domestic violence restraining order from possessing firearms. You can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Hello, podcast listeners. If you don't already know On the Merits, our weekly podcast devoted to legal and government news, it's a show that features the very best of Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government, newsrooms that boast among the largest number of credentialed journalists in D.C. When you listen to On the Merits, you'll hear about the groundbreaking developments in the courts, in Congress, and in the alphabet soup of federal agencies that run Washington and our nation. 
Our show is by and about legal policy nerds, and we say that lovingly. It's a nerd's eye view of what professionals in the legal and government space need to know, but you do not have to be a nerd to listen. Check out our show on the merits and find new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find our archive of shows at news.bloomberglaw.com slash podcasts.